0: Hey, happy Sunday, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm feeling a lot better. i got to give a message to Michelle. I'll look into that tablet thing. Thank you so much. I have to leave your comments up because the only instructions he gives me is if I delete your comments, I, del- I, I it ends up banning you. So if that's okay, I want to leave them up. Just let me know. Um, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Anyway, I'm a lot better. My cough is a dry cough. and. Uh, I'm glad my uh, one of my producers uh, took me out to lunch today, and it uh, feels good to actually get out and be out in the world again, like uh, like a normal human being. So, yes. Okay. So hopefully, Michelle. Hopefully, Michelle gets my message because I'm not going to delete her. That's what happened last time when I started when I deleted I deleted her by accident, and she was gone out of YouTube. So I don't want to do that. Okay. Well, welcome. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner. Of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. <coughs> yeah, we are forty-five strong up and down the state, which means if you think you have a paranormal need, we can get to you. Michelle, what I'll do is, as soon as the show's over, I'll I'll delete your comments. uh anyway, <laughs> and in the case that we can't get to you because California is this huge state, I will be able to have one of my uh, sensitives give you a call. And uh, they'll talk to you. And if if what's going on seems like it's paranormal, they can. In a lot of the cases, they can settle down that particular activity until we can get out there. And again, you know, it won't take us more than two or three days to get out there. So we will definitely get out there. Plus, I'll be in touch with you on the phone, going over all the, going over the details, and talking to you about what's going on. That being said, if you're watching from Facebook today, and a lot of you are, and you haven't done so already, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from YouTube, and a lot of you are, uh, please uh, feel free to hit that that subscribe button as uh, we're just trying to reach that thousand, that that magic thousand number. I would really appreciate. it. Also, you know, comment in the chat room. I'm always open to to see you guys commenting and leave me some love. Show me some love. Give me some thumbs up. Give me you know give, give me some hearts. Everybody does this, but me. So is that it? I don't know. Ah, old people. Um <laughs> leave me some hearts leave me some smiley faces and uh, that would be really great if you could do that and be sure to comment in the chat room hello pamela and again michelle i i, I see your messages i'm not going to delete you during the show because that will permanently ban you and i'm not going to do that and i'll have to go through and ban you over uh, youtube so i will i, I will re- i will delete your messages after the show tonight <laughs> okay well i'm a little better um, I've improved a lot. I'm sleeping at night. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and I'm not coughing. Coffee- I'm, I'm not coughing my guts out like a lot of people are. So that's a good sign. It's on the way out. Um, my producer took me out to lunch today, and to at least two people in, in that building, we went to get pizza. At least two people in that building were sick as dogs. And I mean sick. I mean the hacking was unbelievable. So <laughs> people, if if you're if you're to that point with your illness, stay home. You know, bad enough I'm still coughing a little bit, but it's 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 pretty well settled down to the point where I'll have a little bit of wet cough, but the rest of it's all dry cough. So it, it's coming back around where it's supposed to be. So I'm real happy about it. Okay, so tonight we're going to be reading from uh, the the Sylvia Schultz book. Don't know how far we're going to get with it. You know, there may be more left in for the whole uh, session, but I don't know exactly what's left in this book because we've been kind of kind of chopping up little pieces of it as we went as it gone. Um, so in the case that we um finish the book early, what I'm gonna do is I have already picked out another book to read. So I'll go ahead and set that up on my tablet and we can just start the new book. Okay. So that, that's the that, that's the working plan right now. But in the meantime, let's get to reading, right? Um, I see any announcements. I'm thinking I'm coming out of being sick. There's so I don't want to get too ahead of myself until I know I'm fully recovered. But um <coughs> just be on the lookout for some fun stuff coming up here. You know, like those extra time to uh, build things and do stuff at, after, hour, you know, California haunts after hours, things like that, our discord and different projects like that, you know, and getting out and doing lives and all that good stuff. I don't want to get ahead of myself and ghost hunts. <coughs> offering some live ghost hunts with you guys and offering some paid ghost hunts to go out and ghost hunt with us, you know, to raise funds and things like that. So just go with the flow here. Hopefully, if I don't have a massive resurgence of this stuff, and it seems like people are recovering from this, and then they're having these, these resurgence of it, hopefully, if that, if that doesn't happen, then off I go. And it's going to be fun, because I'm making going to make changes to the show. I'm going to be doing all kinds of things, and uh, you're going to see a lot, of, a lot of things changing. Plus, I want to start classes and all that stuff, too. All right. Again, Michelle, if you're listening tonight, I will take your uh, – uh, messages message off at the end of the show. I do not want to delete you because that would delete you permanently. And then I'll have to go back into YouTube and go through all that. I don't want to block you out of the show or anything. Okay. <coughs> so if I cough a little bit, just bear with me. Hopefully there's nothing productive coming up. It's like I said, it's mostly a dry cough. Whatever this thing is that's going around is miserable. It's miserable, miserable, miserable. And I don't envy anybody that gets it. And uh, yeah. Okay. Let me call up my tablet, my ancient tablet. <laughs> and uh, we'll get, we'll get the crack in here. In fact, I've got to watch the time because somehow the power got knocked out in here where the uh, where the main uh, plug in box thing got knocked out and it knocked out my clock that I watched my timer clock. So <coughs> it is what it is. So here we go. Let me get it up here and the Spirits of Christmas, Dark Stories of the Home. I love this book, and I can't wait to read it next year again. And I heard that some of you guys out there were trying to find this at your local library. I don't think it would be at a library. I think you're going to have to get it on Amazon if you get it. Or go to <coughs> or go to Sylvia's website to pick that up, because I just don't think it would be in a library. It's a cool book, though. I, I agree. I mean, I'd be, I'd be willing to go look for it in a library, too. I took a little nap. I feel great. I woke up to Ethel Merman. That's just how I am. You know, get that one of those get up and boogie, get up and boogie songs, right? So for me, it was just no business like show business. So I woke up to Ethel Merman blaring. If you guys know who Ethel Merman is, okay. The spirits of Christmas, the dark side of the holidays. It's six ten p.m. Pacific. I will be reading for at least an hour here, whether it's in this book, and then we take we take a two minute break. And I find, and I get the other book up and running. So here we go. Hang on one second. Hang on one, one second. Okay. Mrs. Pickman's ghost. Make sure everybody can hear me, all right? And away we go. Max Cubis lay awake in bed early that December night in 1913. There, <coughs> oh, this one's for you, Pamela. There was a real Wisconsin blizzard howling around the house. The winds piling the snow into deep drifts, but something else was keeping him from sleep. A faint scratching. Coming from somewhere in the house. It wasn't on the second floor where the family slept. It seemed to be coming from the first floor. It sounded like someone walking around in slippered feet, pacing in the night pacing the night away in the darkness. Max couldn't stand it any longer. He got out of bed, careful not to wake his wife Julia. He tiptoed quietly across the room. He held his breath As he reached for the doorknob, he didn't want the squeak of the opening door to wake Julia or the two girls, Helen and and Armilla, Armilla, who slept peacefully in the bedroom across the hall. The moment his hand touched the doorknob, a terrible pounding on the front door echoed through the house. Julia sat bolt bolt upright with a yelp, and the girls called out from their room. Max thought briefly about going to answer the door. But before he could take a step outside the bedroom, the front door crashed open and heavy footsteps, thank you, and heavy footsteps tramped through the front hallway into the kitchen. Julia and the girls joined Max as he stood in the upstairs hallway, trying to summon the courage to peer over the banister. Who's there? Max demanded as his wife and daughters huddled close to him. <coughs> I'm going to see what's going on, Max muttered. Julia and the girls followed him closely as he cautiously went to the stairs, flipped on the light, and went down to the first floor. They searched the entire house, but found no one. As the month wore on, the winter grew fiercer. One night, sometime later, Julia slipped out of bed before dawn to add more wood to the bedroom stoves. She was halfway across the room when a misty figure materialized next to the stove. The figure coalesced into the apparition of an elderly woman who held her hands out to the stove as if trying to warm them. The ghost vanished moments later. The Cubist family decided to investigate the history of the home. (coughs) Here we go. Perhaps a former resident had returned home. The old lady at the wood stove and the nocturnal prowler might possibly be the same spirit. Max and Julia learned from their neighbors that their house had been a lifelong home of an old woman named Mrs. Alex Pickman. She had loved her Milwaukee home and had always told her husband and relatives that she fully intended to return there as a ghost. She had recently died and was buried in Omaha, Nebraska. Apparently, she hadn't forgotten her promise to haunt her former home. During the next few weeks, Mrs. Pickman continued to visit her old house, always between midnight and 1 a.m. The front door would slam open as if to announce the spook's arrival. Then footsteps would pace the house as Mrs. Pickman made her nightly rounds. The family also heard the ghost wheezing alarmingly, as though Mrs. Pickman was trying to catch her breath. That's happening here only it's me. The neighbors nodded knowingly. In life, Mrs. Pickman had had an asthmatic condition. One night, though, the ghost changed his habits. The Kubas girls, Helen and Armila Armia were fast asleep at midnight. Suddenly they were jolted awake by the by the thud of a body hitting their bed, followed by the commotion of someone invisible scrambling to get under the covers. That bet freak you out, wouldn't it? Michelle, really quick. Michelle, um, I'll take your comments off after the show. Because if I take them off right now, it'll not only take the comments off, it'll ban you over YouTube. And I don't want to do that tonight. So I'll go ahead and remove the comments. But thank you. I'm going to look at the dates and not all that. Okay, continuing. The girls fled from the room, screaming bloody murder. The resident old lady ghost was behaving like a rowdy eight-year-old at a sleepover. The Cuba's family had had quite enough. The very next morning... Max told Julia and the girls to pack their bags. They moved all their belongings out of the house that day. Well, almost all of them. In their hurry to get out of the haunted house, the family left behind the clock that sat on the mantel. Julia Cubis remembered it the next day and went back for it in the daylight. When she picked it up, she found that it had stopped at midnight. Wow, okay. And thank you, Michelle. So, yeah, sorry, we'll take her, uh, we'll remove them. Haunts of Heartland. Little drinky here. It does feel good to feel better, I'll tell you. Haunts of Heartland. There's a lot of strange stuff away in the wild corners of New England. One of these places is the ravine between Garvin and Heartland Hills in Vermont. These back roads are haunted by a commune of hippie ghosts. Cool. In 1971, so the story goes, five young men and two women rented a house nearby for Christmas break. They were wealthy college students from out of state, and they told people they were there to go skiing in Woodstock. Parentheses, according to the locals, they were really there to smoke pot, a lot of pot. End parentheses. Whatever the reason, they were there on vacation, but tragedy struck when the house caught fire. No one knows how the blaze began, but it took mere moments for the flames to engulf the place. The seven students inside were too dazed to react, much less to escape. All of them were killed in the fire. Even today, locals driving the back roads around that land report seeing ghastly long-haired figures along the side of the road. One witness, a Mr. Sawyer, was a bit more detailed in telling of his experience. He says he saw a ghostly figure running down the road, holding a flaming chair in his arms, eternally trying to escape his fate. The Things We Do For Love the city of New Orleans is crawling with ghosts at every time at every time of year. These specters, okay, these specters represent the same vivid cross section of humanity that throngs the streets of this vibrant city in life. There is a house on the seven hundred block of Royal Street that features a rooftop ghost, a phantom that is, shall we say, an SFW. The spirit is that of a young lady, pretty slave girl. Who fell hopelessly in love with a Creole man? The young man was handsome, but he apparently had a vicious streak. He promised to marry the young slave if she proved her devotion to him by spending the night on the roof of his house, stark naked. The girl was so besotted that one night soon after, she actually did as he demanded. She stripped off all her clothes and lay down to spend the night. Unfortunately, she was too impatiently love struck to wait for warm weather. It was a cold December night when she lay down. She never got up. Her would-be husband found her on his rooftop the next morning, frozen to death. Ooh, cheery Christmas story. Neighbors say that when December nights turn especially chilly, the young slave girl comes back, still trying to prove her undying love for her intended. She still wanders the rooftop of that house, her lithe, nude form backlit against the starry sky. The Christmas rosebush. Let me check the comments real quick. And I'll get back to you guys. Cool. Okay. <coughs> okay. Cool. Okay. Just checking. I want to make sure about those comments. Um. Okay. The Christmas rosebush. In West Virginia, many years ago, there lived a family by the name of Alts. They were a large family. In fact, they were only. only three of them they weren't a large family in fact there were only three of them mr and mrs jim alts and their daughter anna they were a happy prosperous family with but one blot on their blessed lives anna Alts was quite sickly and no doctor could explain her illness one night early december anna suddenly got up from her bed her parents were astounded anna had been bedridden for most of her young life dreamily as if in a trance, Anna threw, the ba- threw back the covers, went to the door, and walked outside. Her parents followed. <coughs> her mother, wringing her hands, was worried. Was Anna sleepwalking? Would it be wrong, even dangerous, to wake her? Anna wandered through the yard, her bare feet leaving small prints in the newly fallen snow. She came to a rose bush she had often gazed at through her bedroom window. Anna's strange journey out to the garden sapped what little strength she had. She sank to the frozen ground her hand now stretched to the rosebush. Her mother and father rushed to her side, but it was too late. Anna was dead. Her parents were heartbroken at the loss of their only child, but they soon had a strange consolation. The rosebush began to bloom shortly after Anna's death. It continued to bloom all year round, even into the warmer months. Even when the rosebush was covered in snow, beautiful red roses dotted the bush. Several years later, Jim Alts and his wife moved to a new house. They dug up the rosebush and took it with them as a reminder of their lot as a reminder of lost auntie, Anna Anna. <coughs> hmm. It just jumped on me. They replanted the rose bush in the yard of the new house. But to their sorrow, it didn't bloom that spring. Summer too came in with plentiful sunshine and rain, but still the rosebush didn't bloom. The elves feared the rosebush had died. In early December of that year, on the anniversary of Anna's death, a light snow fell. The next morning, Mrs. Alts looked out the window and shrieked. Anna's rosebush was gone. Mr. and Mrs. Alts rushed outside to see what had happened. The rosebush had indeed disappeared, and small footprints in the dusting of new snow led away from the spot where it stood. And that the grieving parents, <coughs> okay, the grieving parents followed the footprints. They had to know. Who would dig up their daughter's beloved rosebush? They traced the footprints all the way to their end and stopped, gazing at the scene in winter. The footprints led straight to the cemetery and stopped at Anna's gravesite. There, on their daughter's grave stood the rosebush. It was covered with beautiful red roses in full bloom. Okay. Please help. Many years ago, <coughs> excuse me. Many years ago, Doctor Anderson was awakened by a frantic pounding on his front door. He dressed quickly and hurried down to answer it. The moon shone brightly on the white snow, and on the young and and on the young girl standing on the doctor's front porch. The doctor wondered briefly why she was so late, out so late. It was past midnight, and the girl couldn't have been more than twelve or thirteen years old. He didn't recognize her. She was dressed in a blue coat, and her shaking hands were thrust into a white muff. "Please help me," the girl begged through shattering teeth. "It's my mother." She's very sick, and I'm afraid she'll die. The girl explained that she and her mother had recently moved into the old holster place. About three miles away, her father was dead, and it was just the two of them now. I think she's got pneumonia, the girl said. Please, you've got to come see her. At the dreaded word pneumonia, the doctor gave a short, sharp nod. Of course I'll come. I'll be just a moment. The girl turned and darted away, heading for the old holster place the doctor shrugged into his good sheepskin coat, grabbed his bag, and went to the barn to settle his horse. As the horse trotted down the road, the doctor mused at the bravery of the young girl who had ventured out after midnight in the bitter cold to seek his help. He was sorry she'd run off <coughs> before he could invite her in to warm up just a bit. The ride didn't take long, but Dr. Anderson was still chilled in the bone when he came inside of the holster farmhouse. He swung down, tied his horse to the gatepost, and hurried up the walk. No one answered his knock. So he eased the door open and came in. A woman lay huddled in a bed, wheezing and shivering. The doctor turned up the oil lamp and set to work. If he could break the fever, the woman might live. He trickled medicine down the woman's throat, then poked the fire to life so he could heat water for for further hot medicine. He worked for a couple of hours, and soon the woman stirred back to the city. How did you know to come, she asked, as she accepted a cup of something hot and steaming from the doctor. Your daughter came to my house to fetch me. She was very brave to come out on foot on such a bitter night. The woman's face paled even farther. My daughter died of pneumonia three years ago. But who could it have been? If it wasn't your daughter, how would she know you were ill? I tell you, there was a young girl about 13 years old who showed up on my porch. She was wearing a blue coat and a white muff. My daughter had a blue coat and a white muff, the woman whispered. They're hanging in the closet over there. Dr. Anderson strode to the closet and yanked open the door. There, hanging right in plain view, were a blue coat and white muff. With trembling hands, he reached out and tucked the finger inside the muff. The fur inside the white muff was damp with perspiration. Wow. Footprints in the snow. It was a cold winter afternoon early in the last century. A mother huddled in her cabin on the West Fork (coughs) of the Little Pigeon River in Tennessee. She held two of her children in a tight embrace, but one was missing. Her two-year-old son had wandered away from the cabin earlier that day. Since then, the temperature had been falling steadily, along with the heavy snow. A neighbor came in, stamping the snow from his boots to grab a few moments of warmth by the fire. The mother looked up, hope dawning briefly in her eyes, then looked back down, defeated. At the shake of the neighbor's head, she was grateful, of course, that all the menfolk were out looking for her precious little one. Word had been passed from cabin to homestead, from house to church, and soon the entire community was out looking. Her own husband was off in Europe, in the trenches, fighting the Germans. All she could do was pray that one of the neighbors would find her little boy, and soon... Dr. Thomas appeared at the door of the cabin. He dressed warmly for the trudge of the woods. He'd come thinking to help the young mother. One look at her stricken face though, and he realized that he all he could best help was not by doctoring her, but by finding her son. Pulling his heavy overcoat clothes, he headed out into the snowstorm with the other searchers. Dr. Thomas struck off in a random direction, hoping he was looking at the ground looking at ground that hadn't already been covered. With the snow falling so thickly, the footprints of the searching men were soon being covered over. Dr. Thomas held his lantern high in the gathering dusk as he scanned the area. The shadows of the evening crowded close under the pines as the last light of the day slipped away. The doctor stopped for a moment, listening to the silence of the woods. Somewhere he knew, men were searching for the little boy with dogs, but he hadn't yet heard the deep bay of a hound on scent. All around him, the snow fell in a silent hush. The branches of the pines swayed with the wind, even as laden with snow as they were. As night fell, the snowstorm grew worse. Dr. Thomas trudged along the dwindling path of the woods, stopping. Whoop, it just went down up on of me. <laughs> Hang on. There it is. Stopping every so often to look closely at any fallen log that might shelter a shivering little boy. His toes were beginning to go numb even with the three pairs of thick woodland socks he wore. But he kept wandering the woods, his lantern held high in search of any sign of the boy. If he was cold, the toddler would be even worse off. Dr. Thomas stopped and turned in a slow circle. He couldn't give up hope, not while the boy was still out there lost in the storm. He held his lantern high, and there on the ground was one footprint. Dr. Thomas bent closer to study it. It wasn't the track of a deer or a dog. It was the footprint of a child, a child who was barefoot. The doctor's heart leapt, and adrenaline spun in his cold fingers and toes, warming them briefly. Finally, here was some sign of the boy. The doctor looked around carefully for more footprints. There was another one, and a third. The bare footprints (coughs) were just visible in the hard-packed old snow, and as the doctor watched, more appeared, the feathery new snow blowing off the old prints. Carefully, the doctor followed the prints, and soon, as soon as he passed the last one, the next one appeared, leading him further into the woods. The doctor no longer cursed the biting wind, because oddly enough, the wind seemed to be blowing the fresh snow off of the prints, revealing the path the barefoot toddler had taken through the woods. Dr. Thomas followed the footprints as they led him to a patch of evergreens. The doctor lifted a low hanging branch and gasped. There, curled up on a soft bed of fallen pine needles, was the young boy, but the doctor had come too late. The boy's skin was waxy white, and his little chest didn't rise and fall with peaceful sleeping breath. The boy had frozen to death in the storm. <coughs> <laughs> Man, okay. Dr. Thomas stifled a low grunt moan, and gathered the child up in his arms. He unbuttoned his coat and his woollen shirt and cradled the boy to his chest. The boy had died in the freezing cold although it was too late. The doctor could at least keep him warm for the sad walk home. He rebuttoned his coat and headed back to the cabin. As the doctor approached the cabin, the young mother came out to meet him. Seeing her there, silhouetted against the yellow glow of the lit cabin behind her, Dr. Thomas felt his spirits sink. How could he break this woman's heart? The mother caught sight of the doctor with his sad burden and ran to him. Dr. Thomas reached the open cabin door Just as the woman came out, crying joyful tears at the return of her baby. The doctor unbuttoned his coat and opened his shirt. I'm so sorry, at least I found him. And to his shock, the little boy blinked sleepily brown eyes at him. The child turned his head, hearing his mother's cry of joy. Mama? Stunned, Dr. Thomas handed the toddler to his mother who cuddled him fiercely. She looked up, tears of gratitude standing in her eyes. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you so much. You saved my little boy. Please come inside and get warm. The doctor followed her into the cabin. His analytical mind fumbled for an explanation. The boy must have been chilled to the point where his vitals had slowed, putting him into a state of <laughs> <coughs> gosh a state of suspended animation. The walk back cuddled against the doctor's warm chest and wrapped him in a heavy overcoat must have warmed the child slowly enough. For him to recover with no harm done. The gentle warming had brought the child back to life as surely as a violet blooms in the spring. Vaguely, he became aware that the boy's mother was still talking. I'm so grateful to you for finding him. She kissed the toddler, who sighed sleepily in her arms. Dr. Thomas roused himself from his thoughts. Yes, I followed his footprints in the snow. I'm amazed he was able to wander so far with bare feet. Bare feet, the mother said puzzled but he's wearing shoes. Frowning, Dr. Thomas lifted one of the boy's feet. Sure enough, the boy was wearing sturdy brogans. I have to tie his shoes on tightly, with double knots, so he won't kick them off, the mother explained. Here, have some coffee. It'll warm you right up. Good job, the neighbor said. Putting a tin is... <coughs> point, okay, Put he said putting a tin cup into the doctor's hand. Dr. Thomas accepted the congratulations and heartfelt thanks of his neighbors. The little boy was safe. That was all that mattered. But the doctor's scientific mind wouldn't rest until he figured out the answer to the mystery. <coughs> Several nights later, he woke from a sound sleep, sitting bolt upright in bed, reeling from a thunderclap of realization. The wind hadn't blown the fresh snow off the child's old prints. The bare footprints had been appearing in the snow step-by-step as he'd been following them. He hadn't been tracking a living child. He'd been following an invisible child, a ghost, or an angel. Next up is the chicken ghost. I think the more I talk, (coughs) the more it irritates my throat. So that's what's going on. (coughs) have some water. But I mean, it's 100% better compared to Friday. Okay. Wet my whistle. Okay. This one's called the Chicken Ghost. One night, December 1943, a British airman stationed in London was out for a stroll. He was crossing Pond Square in Highgate when he heard a strange sound for the mid-20th century. The sound of carriage wheels on cobblestone. Then he heard an even more incongruous sound for a chilly December night in the middle of London. The loud screech of a chicken. The airman looked around in confusion. He couldn't see a carriage, but he did see a chicken, running in disoriented circles and squawking with fright. And probably also with cold, because this chicken had already been plucked. Poor thing. (coughs) 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 Excuse me. The airman took a few steps towards the bird, hoping to help the poor shivering creature. But as he got closer, the chicken vanished. This chicken ghost had been seen in Highgate for over 300 years. It has a perfectly good reason to haunt Pond Square, and its story affects us even even now. You see, that was the world's first frozen chicken, and it led to a revolution in food preservation. The story goes that in April 1626, Sir Francis Bacon was riding in a carriage through London with his friend, Dr. Witherborn, a physician to James I. The sight of the snow-covered ground led to a discussion of the possible use of snow to preserve food. Looking out at the rolling wheels and the path left behind the carriage, Bacon pointed out that Witherborne, to Witherborn that the wheels were packed with chunks of snow and the grass revealed by the passing of the wheels looked fresh and green, even in late winter. Bacon's friend belittled his theory. Irritating enough to want to prove his point immediately, Bacon ordered the carriage to stop. He trotted to the nearest house and brought out one of the household chickens. He wrung the hen's neck, plucked it, cleaned it, and stuffed the carcass with snow. Then he packed more snow around the prepared bird. Bacon's experiment worked, and a new year in commercial food preservation was born. Unfortunately, Bacon's impetuous adventure in the snow led to his contracting pneumonia. He faded quickly and died on April 9, 1626. Soon after Sir Francis's death, visitors to Pond Square began to hear the squawking of a chicken about to be butchered, but no chicken was in sight. Then the audible became visible. People would see a plucked chicken running in confused circles before vanishing through a brick wall. The airman's experience in 1943 was just one in a series of naked chicken sightings down through the years. Now, what I find interesting and funny with this is that the guy that did this, his last name was Bacon, right? Bacon chicken. All right. Okay, fine. Don't laugh. Be that way. The Eternal Beetle. The Dakota. The iconic hotel at the corner of Central Park West, and Seventy Second Street, New York City, is a place that many New Yorkers call home. Several of them ghosts. On December eighth, nineteen eighty, you know there's something weird about these stories. You know, um, December seventh and all that. You know, with Pearl Harbor Day, that will live in infamy. Well, the dates on these things, if if you look at the different dates in some of these on some of these hauntings, over you know over the years, they're always December. 7th December 8th December 7th December 8th something's kind of weird with that day on December 8th 1980 John Lennon joined the ranks of the spirits who roamed the Dakotas elegant Hallways just outside the building's front entrance Lennon was shot four times in the back and shoulder by Mark David Chapman Lennon staggered a few steps then collapsed near his frantic wife Yoko Ono the first reported sighting of Lennon's ghost was in 1983 when Amanda Moores a musician and musician Joey Harrow saw Lennon standing in the archway at the co's entrance, mere yards from where he'd been gunned down. Perhaps being so close to the scene of his murder, had put Lennon in an in, in expensive, expansive, yeah, in a pensive, sorry, even foul mood. Morris almost walked up to the beetle to say hello, but she said the look on his face let her know he wasn't in the mood to chat with strangers. Lennon was in a much better frame of mind when he showed up in his own, when he showed up in his own apartment. Yoko Ono lived at the Dakota for 20 years after her husband's death. One day, she came into the living room to see Lennon's ghost sitting at his wife's piano. He turned to her and said, Don't be afraid, I'm still with you. Then he vanished. Before his death, Lennon claimed to have had his own paranormal experience in the Dakota. He told of seeing a phantom he called the crying lady who would pace the Dakota's hallways. Lennon was not alone. Many other witnesses have reported seeing the crying lady She may be the spirit of Elise Vesley, who was manager of the building through the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Vesley herself, in life, believed passionately in the paranormal. She even claimed to have telekinetic powers. Unfortunately, her son was hit and killed by a truck outside the Dakota. In response to the tragedy, Elise became very protective of the children in the hotel. The sense of responsibility may be why she still haunts the halls of the building. I've heard about that hotel being haunted home for the holidays it's become somewhat oh here we go okay the people that know me will, will know why I'm doing this okay it's become somewhat of a joking urban legend to claim that Elvis Presley is still alive and well and flipping burgers in a diner somewhere in East Ponook. as part of the American culture Elvis sightings are right up there with UFO encounters but even with all the National Enquirer articles shouting otherwise the undeniable fact remains that Elvis Presley did indeed die on August 16, 1977, at Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee. So, what sort of phantom Elvis are people seeing? Or so what sort of phantom Elvis are people seeing? The best guess is that it's just that simple. People who claim an Elvis sighting are actually running into his ghost. The spirit of Elvis seems reluctant to leave this plane of existence. He appeared to an acquaintance, an elderly farmer named Claude Buchanan, just after he Elvis passed away. Claude said that before the news of Presley's death was announced, the figure of Elvis showed up and told him, I've come to say goodbye for a while, Claude. But one year, Elvis decided to go home for Christmas. On December 20th, I've heard this story. 1980, a truck driver named Jack Matthews was taking a load to Memphis. About 100 miles outside of the city, he picked up a hitchhiker. The night was dark, and the hitcher was just a dim form in the passenger seat, a hat pulled over over his face. But the hitcher didn't seem like a threat to Matthews. On the contrary, he was well-spoken and polite. Just the kind of company you'd want on a long trip. In a light Tennessee drawl, he told Matthews that he was going to Memphis to see his mama and daddy for the holidays. The hours passed in pleasant conversation. They talked quite a bit about cars. And the hitchhiker mentioned that he owned several Cadillacs. Matthews took the bows for surely that's what it was. With a good natured grin and a grain of salt, or three. The truck rolled into Memphis, and in the glow of the street lights, the hitchhiker's face began to seem somehow familiar to Matthews. The man asked to be dropped off on Elvis Presley Boulevard, and that's when the penny dropped for Matthews. His passenger looked startlingly like the late entertainer. Matthews found the boulevard and carefully pulled the sixteen wheeler over to let his passenger out. He stuck out his hand to wish the guy a Merry Christmas and realized. He'd never told this passenger his name. I'm Jack Matthews, by the way. The hitchhiker looked Matthews in the eye. I'm Elvis Presley, sir. Yes. (coughs) So there you have it. The Kennedy Road Phantom. Chicago and her suburbs are justly famous for the Phantom hitchhikers that roam their streets, hovering somewhere between urban legend and outright ghost story. These apparitions rack up the paranormal equivalent of frequent flyer miles, with their many appearances to unsuspecting motorists. And the the notorious resurrection, Mary, is by no means the only spirit that wanders the highways and byways of the Second City. Take the Kennedy Road Phantom, for example. This mysterious female ghost first showed up near the town of Byron, Illinois, in December 1980. Her appearance was so shocking that once word got out, Traffic was sometimes bumper to bumper along Kennedy Road, with curiosity seekers angling for a glimpse of the young lady. This may well have been because the slender young woman wore next to nothing, even in the frigid Chicago weather. One witness, Dave Trenholm, came to the Chicago Tribune, came to Chicago Tribune reporters with a story. He said that he was driving along Kennedy Road at about nine PM on the night of january second, nineteen eighty one, with Guy Harriet of Oregon. Dave claimed that the young lady stepped out from behind some bushes at the side of the road. She was, Dave said, tall, slender, nice-looking, about 20. All she was wearing were some black panties and some kind of scarf around her neck, and you could see why they were looking for her. This, despite the fact that the thermometer hovered around 10 degrees that night. Okay, As the woman spotted the car, she turned and ran toward a nearby farmhouse and vanished. Sightings like this went on for weeks. From December 1980 well into January 1981, reliable witnesses filled police blotters with reports of the girl's clothing or lack of it. Different witnesses described different outfits. The girl was seen wearing light-colored shorts and a sweatshirt, or shorts and a light jacket, or even a tiny halter top. One detail remained constant. She was always skimply dressed. This argued against the whole thing being a hoax. It It would take seriously dedicated an outright insane prankster, to walk along the side of a rural roadway in the dead winter half-naked. So who was she? A mentally handicapped girl had been reported missing by her parents around Christmas, and for a while, she became a possible candidate, but that theory was dismissed. Putting aside the possibility of a joke, people naturally turned to the paranormal for an explanation. Perhaps she was a car accident victim who had returned to haunt a stretch of Kennedy Road, or maybe... She was the ghost (laughs) of a woman who had been buried in a nearby cemetery, which had been abandoned and recently destroyed. The story took a gruesome turn in late January, 1981. The Rockford Register Star published a report that an old county sheriff's car had struck a mysterious woman around 8 p.m. and run her over. The woman had suddenly appeared in the middle of the road and the driver of the squad car had no time to react. The car slammed into the woman, and she was pulled underneath the vehicle. According to the officers filing the report, they heard her bones crunch and felt the impact of the tires rolling over her body. (laughs) (coughs) Wow, talking just irritates my throat. The squad car screeched to a stop, and the officers wrenched their doors open and flung themselves out of the car, horrified at what they'd accidentally done. They spread back up the road, aghast at the carnage that surely awaited them. But they never found her body. Puzzled, the officers made their report and braced for the derision of what was sure to follow. A police lieutenant called the story crazy and untrue, but the officers were simply doing their duty, which that night included filing a report of something inexplicable. By the end of January, the reports of the half-dressed Phantom of Kennedy Road had begun to taper off. Soon, the pretty young ghost seemed to fade out of existence, despite the people still quite eager to see her. That was decades ago, but many ghost hunters still keep a sharp eye out for her as they drive down that lonely stretch of road, especially the guys. Well, that figures. Okay, so now we're going into Christmas Eve stories and Christmas Day stories. So this section of the book it's called, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, Ghost Stories of Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. It's finally Christmas Eve. The tree stands proud. Its colored lights twinkling softly on the desk of the winter evening. The presents are wrapped, tomorrow's dinner is planned, and all is ready for the holiday celebration. What walks on this silent night? Santa Stuffs the Stockings. The following three stories come from the website ParanormalAbout.com where people gathered to share their odd experiences. The first story was shared by a reader with the name of Misty G. Quote, when I was nine years old, I'm 30 now, I could not get to sleep on Christmas Eve because I was excited about presents and wondered if my parents had anything to do with the gifts I'd received from Santa the year before. That night, it was hot because the heater was on. I lived in Texas. So I got thirsty. Also, I was wanting to spy. I got out of bed and cracked open my door to make sure no one was out in the living room, so that, so that way I could get something to drink. When I opened the door, I saw someone bent over. Then he stood up. It was Santa Claus. Dressed in red and white getup. Something strange was that I could see the lights of the Christmas tree shining right through him. He was taking stockings down off the mantel and placing them on the coffee table. When he started to turn around to put the next stocking on the table, I closed the door and jumped into bed. The next morning, I woke up and told my sister what I'd seen. I told her where he had put the stockings. When we went into the living room, the stockings were where I said he had put them. We both turned and looked at each other and froze for a moment. From then on, I've told everyone that I believe in Santa. Next, Santa and an Elf. This story, also from paranormal.about.com, comes from contributor Skitty Scat. This incident took place near Seattle, Washington, on Christmas Eve, 1957 or 58. Mom was in a kitchen window when she yelled for my sister and me, ages around five and seven, to come look. There was Santa and an elf carrying a big brown bag, walking down the middle of the street. My dad went running out the door to see if Santa would come and say Merry Christmas to his kids, but Santa, the elf, and the big brown bag had vanished. Okay. The Ghost in the Living Room, and one more story from Arthur H. My mother, to whom I was very close, passed away in 1964 when I was 17 years old. I left home that year and moved to Ontario from Nova Scotia. In 1969, I met a girl whom I will call Karen, and we got married in March of 1970. In December of 1971, we were expecting our first child. We were living in a small bungalow. There was a fireplace in the living room. My wife and I loved that fireplace, and we had lit it every night. It was Christmas Eve, 71, and we had just finished putting the gifts under the tree, and a nice fire gave off a beautiful glow. On the tree, one string of lights, which was supposed to flash, had stopped several days before. It was five minutes to midnight when the fire in the fireplace suddenly went out, and the string of lights started to flash, and the other lights stopped flashing. My wife and I were sitting on the floor, and it had become very chilly in the room. I looked over to my lazy boy chair and a figure was sitting there, my mother, with a big beautiful smile on her face. My wife, who had never met my mother, said she could see the same thing. This ghost never spoke, but she was just looking at me and my wife and smiling. At 12 midnight, the fire in the fireplace started up again and the lights on the tree stopped flashing and the others started flashing again. I looked over to the chair and the ghost was gone. No what, no matter what I did to those Christmas lights, they never flashed again. That's not Santa. Murder, suicide, orphans, five children by Bruce Trachtenberg, Organia Oregon, Sta- staff writer. Oregonian staff writer, a Portland mother of five died of gunshot wounds early Sunday in apparent murder-suicide in a North Portland home where she had sought refuge. Her former husband turned the gun on himself after, her, after after first shooting her, according to the Multiple County Medical Examiner's Office. Dead are Marles H, Marles H, 36, Billy H, 42. Mrs. H and the children have been living at the home of Mary E. Bellinger, where the shooting occurred. She came here in the hopes of finding some protection, Mrs. Bellinger said. We had known each other for about four and 1 half years. We used to live next door to each other. The medical examiner's office said Mrs. H. was beaten and killed about 2.50 a.m. Sunday after she let her former husband into the house. Billy, H., also died of a gunshot wound. Mrs. Ballinger said she hoped the children could spend Christmas with her family. I hope the court is good enough to let the kids stay here for Christmas. We want to try and make this the best Christmas that we can make for them. We don't want to upset them any more than possible. The police youth division said later Sunday the children would be allowed to spend Christmas at the Bellinger's home. This is from the Portland Oregonian, Orgo- December 24th, 1973. All right, continuing. Domestic violence pays no attention to the date on the calendar. If death is going to come from within the family, it doesn't matter what day it is. Marles and Billy couldn't work out their differences peacefully, and they both ended up dead. The violence tore apart the front room of the home. Marles was shot just inside the front door, on a couch near a glass-fronted cabinet, the gunshots shattered the glass into a thousand twinkling shards. Blood from the murder-suicide drenched the room in gore. The couple's five children and the family who took them in were unharmed. But the echo of that terrible violence still thrums through that, through, through the North Portland home. Marles and Billy still held the house where their lives ended in a blast of lead and a spray of blood. Twelve years after the tragic event, in 1985, a family moved into the house that had sat abandoned for so long. Michael and Carolyn Brown had been looking not seriously for a large older home, and the three story Victorian, just a block away from where they were living, came up for sale. It was listed at just fifty eight thousand dollars. But no one bought it. The price dropped several times, and the Browns became interested, even though the house had sat empty for a year and a half. The couple made an offer for of forty-two thousand dollars, and the house was theirs. The Browns couldn't believe their luck. They moved into the house in November of 85, along with their daughters, Jenny and Cassie. The Browns lived in the house for a year and a half before Carolyn began to have spooky feelings about their new home. It wasn't anything specific. Nothing she could put her finger on, just a feeling of something being not quite right. Six months later, she and Michael were talking about the house, comparing notes as if, as it were, and Carolyn discovered that Michael also found the house disconcerting in a way he couldn't explain to her or to himself. Both Michael and Carolyn agreed that perhaps the floors in the home were a little too creaky, that perhaps the window in their daughter Jeannie's bedroom shouldn't be opening by itself. A couple of years after the Browns moved in, a former owner of the house stopped by to see his old home. As he was leaving, he asked the couple if they knew that their home had been the scene of a murder-suicide. Shocked at the news, Carolyn and Michael did some investigating with the neighbors. Sure enough, the neighbors confirmed the story. A lady had left her husband and had come to the home of her friends, seeking safety for herself, and her five kids. Her husband had come after her, killed her, then turned the gun on himself. Cassie, the couple's younger daughter, was the first in the family to see the ghosts of Marlis and Billy. She told Carolyn that a nice lady would come to tuck her in at night, but that a man would also come into her room. Cassie, not yet three years old, found the man scary because he never smiled. He only watched. But the lady was kind and pulled the blankets up and tucked Cassie in soothing the toddler to sleep. On Christmas Eve of 89, daughter Jenny snuck downstairs for an early peek at the presents under the tree. A man was standing near the tree, gazing at it, his back to the little girl. Jenny caught her breath. Could Could it be her dad standing there? Or even Santa Claus? The man turned to face her and vanished. Jenny, scared out of her wits by the man who was obviously neither her father nor Santa, scampered back to bed. Much later, she told her parents what she'd seen. The man she described sounded a lot like the man Cassie had seen watching her in her bedroom. The Browns were forced to admit that they were sharing their home with ghosts. One of the spirits made this presence known exactly a year later. On Christmas Eve, 1990, <coughs> the Browns hosted the annual family Christmas at their beautiful, spacious home. Carolyn's sister-in-law had bought a tiny tray of mixed nuts for the party. The relatives had all gone home. And Michael and the two girls had already gone to bed. Carolyn was in the kitchen straightening up the last of the party mess. I was putting some stuff away and noticed that the tray with the nuts was halfway off the table, Carolyn said. I pushed it back under the table and then I started putting things away again. And then the tray just flipped backward. It was like someone had taken his hand underneath and flipped it up. The tray hit the wall and nuts scattered everywhere. Carolyn snapped off the lights and bolted for the safety of her bedroom. The spilled nuts could wait until morning. Poe finds his inspiration. Many connoisseurs of horror fiction consider Edgar Allan Poe to be the father of the genre. And one of his finest short stories is the cast is the cask of the okay, give me a second, is the cast of the uh, Amon Tildado. amontillado Amon Tildado. Montel Lado. It's funny to hear me try and do these words, right? This deeply creepy tale is a staple of high school literature classes, and for good reason. It's the story of a man who gets bricked up alive in a dungeon of fate he thoroughly deserves. What most of these high school English students didn't know is that Poe based his story on true events. Poe was born in Boston in Jan- on January 19, 1809. In 1827, The 18-year-old Poe enlisted in the Army. His first posting was pretty close to home, at Fort Independence on Castle Island in Boston Harbor. One Sunday, when he had some free time, Poe wandered outside the fort's walls, down to the water's edge. A monument there caught his attention, and naturally, he wanted a closer look. On one side of the obelisk, Poe read the inscription, The officers of the USS Regiment of Lieutenant Arnie erected this monument, as a testimony of their respect and friendship from amiable man and gallant officer. On another side of the monument, Poe found a few lines from a poem by William Collins. Here honor comes a pilgrim grave to deck the turf that wraps his clay. Curiouser and curiouser, Poe must have thought. He continued his circle of the obelisk on the northern side, which faced Boston, he found yet another piece of the puzzle. Beneath this stone are deposited the remains of Lieutenant Robert F. Massey. Of the US Regiment of Light Artillery. Near this spot, on the 25th, December, 1817, fell Lieutenant Robert F. Massey, aged 21 years old. Even in his late teens, Poe had the makings of a horror writer, and here was the scene of what promised to be an amazing story. All he needed were the juicy details. He did a little poking around on the slide, and before long he had some very illuminating conversations with his fellow soldiers. Ten years earlier, in the summer of 1817, a young lieutenant named Robert Massey, had been posted to the fort. He was a likable guy and made friends quickly, but there was one officer who just didn't take to Massey. Call it a personality conflict if you want, but... Truth was, Captain Green didn't much like anyone at the fort. (coughs) He was a bully, plain and simple. The other men just tried to avoid him, but it wasn't always easy to do on the small island. On Christmas Eve, Massey, Green, and a few other officers settled in for an evening of cards. Massey and the others enjoyed the friendly games, but Green seemed determined to ruin Christmas for everyone. Around midnight, Massey won the hand of cards they had been playing. With a grin, he reached for his winnings. Well, Merry Christmas to me. Green leapt from his chair with a snarl and smacked Massey across the face with an open palm. You cheated. Then he said the words that froze every man's blood. I demand satisfaction. Lieutenant Massey knew he was in serious trouble. A duel of honor could not be ignored, even on Christmas Day. Even worse, he knew Captain Green was an expert swordsman. He spent the remaining hours of the night tossing in a cold sweat of dreadful anticipation. The next morning, at the break of dawn, Massey and Green met outside the walls of the fort, along with their seconds. In the singing cold air, their seconds, following tradition, pleaded with the two men, to set aside their impending duel. But Green refused, and Massey had no choice but to go through with it. The duel began with a clash of steel. Massey did his best to defend himself, but Green pressed his attack. On that cold, clear Christmas morning, he wanted to kill. Massey gasped as Green's cold blade pierced his chest. The duel was over within moments. The young lieutenant's men lifted him gently from the sand and carried him to the infirmary. Robert Massey died later that afternoon. Massey had been respected and well-liked by his men. He made friends in the months he'd been at the fort. His men moved through their days in a haze of depression and grief. There was no reason Massey had to die. A young man cut down in the prime of his strength just to satisfy some bullies less for killing. Then, some of Massey's friends learned some information they found very interesting indeed. They already resented Captain Green for the capricious death of their friend Massey. They were intrigued to learn that Green had goaded officers in other forts in the duels on equally flimsy pretext. In short, Green was responsible for the deaths of six other men. He was, Massey's friends realized, a sociopathic killer, who chose to murder his victims in plain sight. Robert Massey's friends had a monument erected to mark the spot where he'd been run through. At nearly the same time, a strange thing happened. Captain Green disappeared. The top brass at the fort could give no explanation, so after some time he was considered a deserter. (laughs) Okay. (coughs) Jeez. Green was never seen or heard from again. But the story, Poe discovered, didn't end there. One night, still mourning the senseless death of their friend, a handful of Massey's fellow officers paid Captain Green a visit. They brought several bottles with them. Never one to turn down a free drink, Green lifted a few glasses and still the other officers kept topping off his mug. Soon, Green was was knee-walking drunk. Two burly officers propped him up, one under each arm, and they went for a walk. The whole group manhandled Green out of his room and down, down to one of the old dungeons of the fort. Earlier that day, the officers had gone searching for the most remote of the abandoned cells. The dungeon had fallen out of regular use, but the cells were still equipped with the iron shackles of days gone by. The men hustled Green down into the dark, down to the dark, filthy cell, and dragged him through the narrow door. They dumped him on the dusty floor and clamped the rusty iron manacles to his wrists and ankles. Green came to a groggy, half-conscious, and slurred question: "What the hell am I doing here?" Then, realized, then realization cut through the fog and alcohol. The officers ignored him as he began to yell and struggle against his chains. Silently, they mixed mortar and began to take bricks from the pile stacked next to the door. It didn't take long for the men working together to bri- to brick up the narrow cell door. It took longer, probably much longer, for Green to die screaming in the pitch blackness. The officers involved all requested transfers to other forts, but before they all left, whispers began among the lower ranks. The story was shared in low, muttered tones. 10 years later, there were still soldiers at Fort Independence who remembered the true story and fate of Captain Green. They shared that hushed tale with budding horror writer Edgar Allan Poe. The the higher-ups got wind of Poe's research and he was called to the office of the Force Commander. Poe was told that he was strictly forbidden to tell anyone the story of Massey's duel and its grisly consequences. Poe agreed to the gag order. Of course, no writer could sit on a juicy story like that forever. Many years later, Poe composed a story set in Europe titled The Cask. Uh, Here we go. The cask of the Amontillado. I got it, cask of the Amontillado. He was forbidden to tell the story, but no one has said he couldn't write a story that had its roots in the sand of Castle Island, roots that reached down into the dungeons far below the ground. But there is yet more to this story. In 1905, a work crew on the island discovered the oldest section of the fort. On comparing the prison cells of the fort's original plans, crew realized they didn't match. A bricked-up section of wall captured their attention. Maybe the missing cells were behind, were behind the wall. The foreman called for more light and a couple of pickaxes. As the men set to work, solving the mystery. After a couple of hours' hard work, there was a hole in the wall, large enough for a small man to fit through. The man came back out of the cell much more quicker than he'd gone in. There's a skeleton in there, he gasped. The men pulled down the rest of the wall, revealing a skeleton dressed in the tattered remains of an 1812 era army uniform. Rusted shackles still encircled the bones and wrists and ankles. The skeleton's jaw hung open in a soundless scream. The remains were never identified. They were simply given a military funeral and buried in the cemetery of Castle Island. The gravestone reads, Unknown. Funny that the unknown soldier rested on the same island where Lieutenant Massey's monument stands tall and proud, or at least it did for a while. A bridge was built in 1891 that connected the castle island to Boston, and thousands of weekend visitors came to see Massey's monument. In 1892, a new cemetery was opened on Governor's Island and the monument, and Massey's remains were moved there. In 1908, the body and monument were moved again to Resthaven Cemetery on Deer Island. Massey was allowed to rest in Resthaven until 1939, when he and his monument were uprooted once again and moved halfway across the Strait to Ayer, Massachusetts. Robert Massey was finally buried at Fort Devens. May he rest in peace until the next time someone moves him. Christmas Carols in the Woods. The old man had retired from, from the Baltimore and Ohio rail line. The engineer had been known for his love of the Christmas season. Every December, he'd buy sacks of candy to toss to the children, who lived in the houses along the tracks, like a rolling Santa Claus. And he would bellow Christmas carols as he worked, filling the railroad cars with cheerful song. His retirement package had allowed him to buy a photograph and start a collection of records. Most of them, predictably, were Christmas music. The old man got a few visitors during the Christmas season, even with his house tucked away in the woods. Anytime a friend or family member stopped by, the old man would cheerfully invite them in to sip coffee and enjoy a small collection of records. When the old man passed away, his relatives came to clean out his tiny house. They took his records and his cherished photograph, and the house was left empty. In 1968, the old B&O tracks that ran past the house were taken up and not replaced. The old man's house fell to the wrecking ball as well. No sense in leaving it if no one lived there, and the tracks were gone. All that was left was the old track bed. Hunters found it a useful trail in the deep woods. Years after the old man died, not long after his house was demolished, a hunter was in that part of the woods. It was two days before Christmas. The hunter was driving carefully down the track then, mindful of the noises of the forest around him, when he heard a sound that had no place in that part of the woods anymore. It was the sound of a Christmas carol coming from a well-worn and well-loved record. Pops, scratches, hisses, and old as the needles coast, coast the tune The aging vinyl. The hunter stopped his car and turned off the engine to make sure his imagination wasn't playing tricks on him. All around him, the music rose, threading through the trees. The hunter shook his head at the weirdness of it and turned the key in the ignition. His car wouldn't start. Frantically, he stopped on the gas and twisted the key again. The motor just wouldn't turn over. Then the hunter saw movement ahead of him. An old man was crossing the track bed. The man walked slowly up. To the front porch of the house that that had shimmered into view next to the platform train tracks, phantom train tracks. The hunter watched the man open the front door of the tiny house as the music got fainter and fainter. The house, the old man, and the last strains of the music all faded away together. This time the engine caught, and the hunter wrenched the steering wheel around and slew through the woods to get out. On his return to town, he stammered out his tale. He was astounded to find that some of his audience, the older folks, actually believed him. They remembered the old engineer who lived in the house in the woods and loved the Christmas season so much and who invited visitors to listen to his favorite records. The next night, Christmas Eve, 13 boys set out for the woods in three cars. They wanted their own experience in the dark of the forest. They drove on the track, bed out to where the old engineer's house once stood. They parked, shut off their cars, and waited. The boys' experience was just a little different than what the hunter had reported. They didn't see the Phantom House, and they didn't see the old man crossing the tracks to get to the house. But they heard the music, rising among the trees, sounding just like an old Victrola cranked up to wheezy full volume. As their cars would not start until the music faded away, and their cars would not start until the music faded away, the boys went back out for a few nights after Christmas, but nothing happened on those visits. Legend has it that the music can only be heard in the days leading up to Christmas. After Christmas Day, the old photograph falls quiet and silence returns to the woods along the tracks until the next Christmas season comes around. All right, look at that. We made it with a minute to spare. Okay, we'll continue this next week. And I think next week will probably be the last week, and we'll be starting another book. So I want to thank everybody for joining me tonight. I really appreciate it. And uh, tomorrow, I'm going to be doing a pre-record with a animal psychic at 11 a.m. and I will be playing it at 6:30 p.m. I will be on the chat along with you guys, but I uh, will play live. will be playing at 6:30 p.m. But be sure to watch this. Her name is Susan Allen. She's really, really good at what she does, and um, I think you'll like it. So if you like the show, share with five people. If you hated the show, Share it with five of your enemies. Yeah, share it with five of your enemies. Uh, we're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And uh, be on the lookout for some upcoming events. I'm going to be doing, as soon as all this heals, which should be coming up here. I can feel myself getting better. We should be doing after dark stuff as well. California Haunts After Dark, which means after we get done with the show here, I go over to the other uh, other studio and we do some real fun cra- arts and crafts and Different things like that over there. So thank you for everybody that came today. I hope you enjoyed the stories as much as I did. And I will definitely see you guys tomorrow. One way or another. Let me uh, cue this up. Why did they cue you up? Where are you? There you go. So I will definitely see you guys tomorrow on the chat. And please do come. Don't skip out because it's a pre-record. I mean, this is going to be a brand new guest coming on. And like I said, her name is Susan Allen. Okay? So thank you. And I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.